Hi everyone, I'm Lynn Kitchens and welcome back to Women in the Word. I'm excited about our topic today. In fact, today we are on holy ground. I would say that talking about the resurrection of Jesus is a sacred subject. In fact, Christian faith is based on the reality of the resurrection. Years ago, I was in my senior year in college and I met a friend my senior year who was a Christian, and we talked sometimes about her faith. I didn't know her real well, but I liked her a lot. And one day she said to me, hey, if you're not doing anything on Saturday, you know, turn on Wide World of Sports, which was a sports show many years ago, on every Saturday morning. And she said, I'll be on it. And I was like, really? You will? And she said, yeah, I'm a diver. So I thought, oh, they're going to be in a pool doing some high dives. Okay, I'll watch it. So I turned it on, and there's my friend diving off cliffs in Hawaii. And they weren't little cliffs. They were big cliffs. And there she was. And I was amazed. So the next time I saw her, we talked about it a little bit. And then we started talking about the faith again. And she said something that was interesting to me. She had some doubts about some of the truths of our faith. And so she said to me, but I decided if some of these things aren't true about our faith, it's okay because we'll be living good lives and we'll be better people. And I thought, yeah, that's right. That makes a lot of sense. Then I went home and started doubting. And then I thought about what Paul said. And Paul said, if we only have faith in this life today and we don't know what's next, we should be pitied. Our faith is worthless. Not knowing if Jesus really rose from the dead would sort of be like jumping off this giant cliff and looking really good in the air for a while, but not really knowing what is it that's underneath me. If the resurrection of Jesus Christ never happened, then we won't be resurrected. If the resurrection of Jesus Christ never happened, we are still in our sins. And if the resurrection never happened, then Jesus isn't the Son of God. He was just a good liar. Or he was crazy, a lunatic. Fortunately, we have recorded here in this book the testimonies of witnesses who saw Jesus resurrected. He appeared to over 500 people before he ascended back to God. And Paul recognized how important it is for people to know that for 40 days, the resurrected Jesus Christ walked on this earth. How can people hope for salvation if they doubt that the Lord ever rose? Look on your verse sheet at the um, two verses that Paul wrote in Corinthians. Let's look at the second one. Paul says, I delivered to you as of first importance what I received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the scriptures, that he was buried, and that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the scriptures, and that he appeared to Cephas, who's Peter, and then to the 12. And then he appeared to more than 500 brothers at one time, most of whom are still alive, though some have fallen asleep. Then he appeared to James, then to all the apostles. And then Paul says, last of all, 
as to one untimely born, he appeared to me. You know, you can dig up the graves of all the founders of the major religions in our world, and when you do, you will find their remains. But you can look for the remains of Jesus Christ as long as you want, and you will never find them. Our faith is founded on a man who rose from the dead, and he proved to be God. The last two chapters of the book of John present this crowning proof that over 2,000 years ago, this man from Nazareth said he would rise from the dead, and he did, showing he was the Son of God. And John wrote this so we would know it, so we would believe it. And he had the credentials for us to believe him. John was there. John loved Jesus for three years, and never in his wildest dreams could he have imagined what life with Jesus was going to be like. John was there and saw this man from Nazareth walk on water. He saw him calm the storms. He saw demons jump out of bodies just because Jesus commanded it. He watched Jesus touch the lame and jump up the blind seeing again. He stood on the Mount of Transfiguration with Jesus and saw Jesus turn into his transformed, glorious body, bright and holy. He saw Jesus take five loaves of bread in his hands and multiply it to feed 5,000 people. And John was there to watch Jesus as Lazarus walked out of a tomb after being dead four days just because Jesus told him to. This disciple who laid his head on Jesus' shoulder at the Last Supper is the same disciple who knew three days later that Jesus was now alive. How did he know that? Let's look at the crowning proof, some eyewitnesses of his resurrection, and you will notice Jesus didn't come back and appear to non-believers. And we would think, why not? Because they wouldn't believe him. If they didn't believe Jesus when he was alive and all the incredible things he did and said, they would not believe him even after he resurrected. So he appeared exclusively to his followers so he could confirm their faith in the living Christ. His first appearance would be to his friend named Mary Magdalene, a woman who was in bondage by seven demons. Jesus had freed her. Can you imagine how her life had changed after that happened? And because of that, she was committed to Jesus. She served him. She cared about him. She helped provide for him. And now her strong devotion to Jesus took her to the cross and then to the tomb. And all she really wants to do is see Jesus again. She has the things prepared to continue to anoint his body. And she wants to be with him. Look at chapter 20, verse 1. On the first day of the week, Mary Magdalene came to the tomb early while it was still dark, saw that the stone had been taken away from the tomb. So she ran and went to Simon Peter and the other disciple who Jesus loved, which is John, and said to them, they have taken the Lord out of the tomb and we don't know where they put him. So Peter 
went out with the other disciple and they were going toward the tomb, both of them running together. But the other disciple outran Peter and reached the tomb first. And stooping to look in, he saw the linen cloths lying there, but he didn't go in. But then Simon Peter came following him and, of course, went into the tomb. He saw the linen cloths lying there and the face cloth, which had been on Jesus' head, but it was not lying with, by the other linen cloths, but folded up in a place by itself. And then the other disciple who had reached the tomb first, John, also went in and he saw and he believed. For as yet they didn't understand the scripture that he must rise from the dead. And then the disciples went back to their homes. So it really takes putting all the gospels together. If you have time one day, do that to see about the resurrection. And we get the entire picture of the resurrection then. But it was more than Mary Magdalene who got up while it was still dark and was going to the tomb wondering, how are we going to move this stone? There were other women with her. How can we do that so we can get to Jesus? And all of their hearts fell when they saw that the stone was moved and when they realized Jesus was not in the tomb. There would have been a lot of weeping going on. But, you know, that's why that stone was moved away, which probably weighed about 2,000 pounds. It wasn't moved so Jesus could get out. It was moved so everyone could look in and see that he had risen from the dead. Not that Mary understood that yet. She was so upset, she just lifted up the bottom of her robe and took off running and didn't stop until she got to Peter and John. And she said, someone took Jesus. So Peter and John began their own race, lifted up their row bottoms, took off running, and ran to the tomb. And John got there first. John won. In fact, someone sent me a joke last week about this, where John turned to Peter at the tomb and said, I won. And Peter said, who cares? Who's even going to know about it? And John whispered to himself, everyone will know. And we do. <laughs> Why did John even record that he got there first and that Peter was behind him. He was wanting everyone to know never was someone there by themselves. Never was someone unaccompanied that went into the tomb so that later no one could accuse John of making up this story because he was by himself. Even though John arrived at the tomb first, he stopped and he stooped to look in and Peter went tearing past him right in. You couldn't stop the impulsive, passionate Peter. And then John joined him in the tomb, and they looked where Jesus had been. And what did they see? They saw grave clothes still arranged on that slab exactly as they would have been on Jesus. Not thrown around. If someone was a grave robber and they wanted to take a body away for some reason, would they have ripped the cloths off and then carefully folded them? Would they have put them in the exact place that they would have been on his body? No. In fact, if someone wanted to steal a body, they would have left the body wrapped in cloths. It would have been much easier to move. But Peter and John saw those grave cloths, and it looked as if Jesus' body had just risen right out of them. The face cloth was where the face was. 
and it was folded in the same way it would have been folded on Jesus's head. Luke tells us that when they saw this, Peter went home just marveling about it. But John tells us when he looked at that evidence, he believed. He believed that Jesus had risen right out of those clothes. He was the first disciple to believe in the resurrection of his friend Jesus. And, you know, I was thinking about this. John was there when Lazarus rose from the dead, and he watched Lazarus walk out of his tomb wearing his grave clothes. And here we see them left behind because Jesus has risen into his glorious body. John saw the difference between the two, and he believed in the resurrection. Meanwhile, a very distressed Mary Magdalene has made her way back to the tomb. Let's look at verse 11. Mary stood weeping outside the tomb, and as she wept, she stopped to look into the tomb. She saw two angels in white sitting where the body of Jesus had lain, one at the head and one at the feet. They said to her, woman, why are you weeping? She said to them, they've taken away my Lord, and I don't know where they've laid him. Having said this, she turned around and saw Jesus standing, but she didn't know it was Jesus. Jesus said to her, woman, why are you weeping? Whom are you seeking? Supposing him to be the gardener, she said to him, sir, if you've carried him away, just tell me where you laid him. I will take him away. Jesus said to her, Mary. She turned and said to him in the Aramaic, Rabboni, which means teacher. Jesus said to her, don't cling to me, for I haven't yet ascended to the Father, but go to my brothers and say to them, I am ascending to my Father and your Father, my God and your God. Mary Magdalene went and announced to the disciples, I have seen the Lord, and that he had said these things to her. Okay, here's something we need to know. No ancient Jewish author would ever have invented a story like this. They would never have used a woman as a witness, which tells us this is Jesus' story. So for all the Gospels to point to Mary Magdalene as the first one to see the resurrected Christ lets us know the disciples didn't make up this resurrection. The last thing they would have thought of would be to have a woman be the first witness of the resurrection. In fact, when you read the other Gospels about these women who went early, they saw angels themselves and they ran back to tell the disciples and the Bible tells us they didn't believe them. They were women. They didn't believe their story. Okay, at first, Mary didn't recognize Jesus. Maybe she had too many tears in her eyes. Maybe she was too distraught. But here's what I think mainly. She didn't expect to see Jesus. Last time she saw him, he had just been crucified. She was not expecting to have him standing there in the flesh. So the very first moment Mary recognized Jesus was when he said her name, Mary. She belonged to him. John 10, 27 tells us this on your verse sheet. My sheep hear my voice, and I know them, and they follow me. That was Jesus and Mary. So here's a few things we can realize about Jesus appearing to Mary first. 
that a woman was the first person to see the resurrected Lord points to our value to God. Something that had been ignored in the Jewish world. Something that may have been ignored in the early church if it wasn't for all these kind of things that Jesus did continually in his three years of ministry. God designed women with worth. Jesus displayed it to women around him. The way he treated women points to the reality that both men and women are made in the image of God and both men and women would be used by God to build the church. And along with that, we know Jesus honors those who seek him and Mary was earnestly seeking him. Look at Jeremiah 29. You will seek me and find me when you seek me with all your heart. And so then, right then, Jesus um, gives Mary a holy task. Tell my brothers I'm ascending to my God and your God. Jesus calls the disciples his brothers now, not just his friends, because believers in Jesus become a part of Jesus's family. And all of us have God as our father because of the work of Christ on the cross. When Jesus said Mary's name, it seems that she ran and embraced him. And I think she was holding on for dear life, which is why Jesus said, don't cling to me. But wouldn't you, wouldn't you be holding on for dear life? She's think, I've got him again. I'm not going to let him go. We've all heard that song in the garden. And what some of us don't know is that that song was written about Mary Magdalene meeting Jesus in the garden. The author of that song was in a room by himself reading this story and he began to pray and put himself into this scene and wrote this wonderful hymn. So the hymn makes a lot of sense when we read it as if we were Mary. It goes like this, I come to the garden alone while the dew is still on the roses. And the voice I hear falling on my ear, the Son of God discloses and he speaks. And the sound of his voice is so sweet, the birds hush their singing. And the melody that he gave to me within my heart is ringing. And he walks with me and he talks with me and he tells me I am his own. And the joy we share while we tarry there, none other has ever known. Her joy was incredibly great at that time. So Mary received special graces as the first one to see the resurrected Lord and be given this holy task of telling others. Next, Jesus appears to the disciples behind closed doors. This is on the night of the same Sunday that Mary saw him. We would have seen if we were on the streets there some candlelight coming out of this locked room on this dark street. Behind that door would be 10 frightened men, minus Thomas. They probably believed that if the Romans took our leader and crucified him, we're going to be next. So they're afraid. But without a lock being touched, without a door being opened all at once, Jesus was in their midst. 
as the disciples stared in fear and confusion, Jesus said wonderful words, peace be with you. They had not felt an ounce of peace since the moment Jesus was arrested. And then to calm their fears and confusion, Jesus shows them his hands. He shows them his sides. It may have looked something like this. How kind of Jesus to be patient with their fears and maybe their momentary skepticism that Jesus could really be Jesus. I think it could have looked like that. Jesus showed them evidence of his crucifixion so they might believe in his resurrection. Now they were experiencing a peace that they never understood before. The dark room is now filled with light and joy, knowing the living Christ. Romans 5 tells us this. Therefore, since we've been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. And then three important things happened in that room that's now filled with joy. Jesus first gives the disciples a new purpose. He tells them, go. He tells them, I'm sending you out into the world just as the Father sent me. You are my representative now. Secondly, he gives them a new power, the Holy Spirit. In fact, he literally breathes the pledge of the coming Holy Spirit over all of them in that room. And it would come and indwell them about 50 days later at Pentecost. He gives them a new privilege, proclaim. And what's connected to proclaiming in this um, job he gave them had to do with the issue of forgiveness. Forgiveness, of course, forgiveness of our sins is one of the greatest results of Christ's sacrifice. The apostles now had the job to proclaim heaven's terms of forgiveness to people that are lost. Not the law's terms, not some made-up terms, not some legalistic traditions that were being carried down, but God's terms. That if you believe in the redemption and the work of Jesus Christ and his resurrection, then you're forgiven. And those who reject this gospel of Christ cannot be forgiven. This would become a theme of the apostles' preaching. This is a theme of us today because they obeyed God in this, telling the good news of forgiveness through Jesus Christ. Okay, Thomas wasn't with the disciples. He's about to find out some things about that. So look at verse 24 in chapter 20. Now Thomas, one of the twelve called the twin, was not with the disciples when Jesus came. So the other disciples told him, we've seen the Lord. But he said to them, oh, unless I see in his hands the mark of the nails, unless I place my finger into the mark of the nails and place my hand into his side, I will never believe. So look at the word told in verse 25. That means a continual telling. So we realize the disciples were continually telling Thomas, we met Jesus. And I wonder if Thomas would have believed him if he knew that thousands of years later, we'd all still be renaming him Doubting Thomas. He doubted the testimony of not one friend, but of nine very close friends. 
Thomas created his own plan in order to believe in the resurrection of Jesus. The plan was all about touching. The plan was all about seeing. And if those things didn't work out in his plan, he made this declaration, then I will never believe. I can remember having lunch years ago with an old friend, and she'd kind of gone a, do, a different direction in the faith. And she said to me, it's because when I see a miraculous sign from God, then I know he's real. And I was slow again answering this thought and went home and thought, yeah, that must be nice. And then I thought some more and I said, you know, that's not what faith is. Faith is seeing, believing what we can't see. That's what pleases God. And so even though Thomas had no faith at this point, Jesus lovingly met him at the point of his weakness. Look at verse 26. Eight days later, his disciples were inside again, and Thomas was with them. And although the doors were locked, Jesus came and stood among them and said, Peace be with you. Then he said to Thomas, Put your finger here and see my hands, and put out your hand and place it in my side. Do not disbelieve, but believe. Thomas answered him, My Lord and my God. Thomas acknowledges that the man he spent three years following was in reality God in the flesh. Jesus uses this opportunity to teach Thomas and the disciples and us today that we must have true faith to carry out God's mission. For the disciples, Jesus could not be with them physically after this. And he's letting them know, you have to believe in me even though you won't see me. I won't be here physically. Look at verse 29. Jesus said to him, Have you believed, Thomas, because you've seen me? Blessed are those who have not seen and yet have believed. Jesus would spend 40 days on earth to confirm his resurrection. Afterwards, all believers must move forward in a new way. Jesus' presence living within them. Walking by faith, not by sight. And we must, too, if we want the blessings that Jesus speaks about here. Look at 2 Corinthians 5 on your verse sheet. It says we're always of good courage because we know while we're at home in the body, we're away from the Lord. For we walk by faith, not by sight. And 1 Peter, I love this verse. Though you have not seen him, you love him. Though you don't see him now, you believe in him. And rejoice with joy that's inexpressible and filled with glory, obtaining the outcome of your faith, the salvation of your souls. One person put it this way, faith sees the invisible, believes the incredible, and receives the impossible. A few years ago, I was in my car near this area, and I was taking a left-hand turn, but I saw a man with a baby on his back coming down the sidewalk, and I thought, well, he's getting to the corner. I'll let them cross, and then I'll make my left-hand turn. I was very surprised, because when he got to the end of the sidewalk, he put his feet out and touched those little um, raised areas at the end of sidewalks to help people who can't see. And I realized, looking at his face, that this man was entirely blind, who was walking with his baby on his back along the sidewalk in his neighborhood. And then he turned around 
and he went back the way he came. You know, he had a lot of faith in that path that he took every day, that it would serve him right, and he could take his baby outside and do that and turn around, even though he couldn't see it. That's what we need to do. God has laid out this wonderful path in our life, but we are not going to be able to physically hold his hand to go down it. We believe it without seeing that he's good and he's laid something out for us. Okay, next Jesus appears to seven disciples on the Sea of Galilee. There were many other appearances of Jesus. This is the last one, though, that John records in Galilee. We learn in the book of Matthew that an angel had told the disciples, go to Galilee, Jesus will meet you there. So that's what they did. Galilee, this is where they lived with Jesus, loved Jesus, learned from Jesus. This is where they had set down their fishing nets and followed Jesus. And this is where Jesus had said, one day you'll all be fishers of men. That day was drawing near. At this moment, though, on the resurrection timeline, can you imagine what they were feeling? They've only seen Jesus a couple times, sporadically. They hadn't seen him in a while. And they're thinking of a million questions. What are we supposed to do next? How do we do it? We've always done everything with Jesus. Where is he? What does he expect from us? Will he provide for us? We always counted on Jesus. Jesus knew about their fears. Jesus knew about their confusion. And so Jesus brought them to a familiar setting to demonstrate that his provision will not stop. He will continue to provide for them. In their helpless state, Jesus found them returning to what they did before they knew Jesus, fishing. Peter had got up one day and said, hey, I'm going fishing. He was such a leader that six of the other disciples said, we'll go with you. They fished all night. They caught nothing. That was Jesus's plan. It was also his plan for them to catch a lot. Let's look at that. Chapter 21, verse 4. Just as day was breaking, Jesus stood on the shore Yet the disciples didn't know it was Jesus. Jesus said to them, children, do you have any fish? They answered him, no. He said to them, cast the net on the right side of the boat and you will find some. So they cast it. And now they weren't able to haul it all in because of the quantity of fish. And that disciple whom Jesus loved, therefore said to Peter, it is the Lord. When Simon Peter heard it was the Lord, he put on his outer garment for he was stripped for work and threw himself into the sea. The other disciples came in the boat, dragging the net full of fish, for they were not far from the land, but about a hundred yards off. Think about how their hearts were encouraged. He's still with us. He's still our Lord. He still loves us. And then they would remember how he had miraculously brought fish into their boat when they were first getting to know them. He provided for them then. He will provide for them now. How encouraged they were as they were rowing back to shore. And again, it was John who first looked at the evidence around him, who first remembered this is what Jesus did before. And I think the words that he spoke in that boat 
just felt like salve on the hearts of the disciples that were so wounded. And Peter says, it's the Lord. I mean, not Peter, John. It's the Lord. And when Peter heard it, he just jumped into the water and swam to Jesus. I love that. Just how they acted when they both ran to the tomb. Only this time, Peter was going to win the race. And he did. He got there. He was so excited. And Jesus was waiting there for the disciples, cooking fish over a fire and bread. How familiar for them. How comforting. And Jesus said to them, come and have breakfast. Jesus asked them to bring some fish from the, for the fire. And John tells us Peter pulled that full net of 153 fish up towards the fire. And I thought it was an illustration that Peter was about to become a fisherman, pulling netfuls of converts for the cause of Christ. First, though, Peter's shame and his sin over denying Jesus at his arrest was hanging in the air. It had to be addressed. I bet Peter thought about it every single day. Peter had denied Jesus around a fire, and so Jesus would restore Peter around a fire. And he would do it publicly so all the disciples would see Peter was not disqualified from ministry for the future. Look at verse 15. When they had finished breakfast, Jesus said to Simon Peter, Simon, son of John, do you love me more than these? He said to him, yes, Lord, you know I love you. He said to him, feed my lambs. He said to Peter a second time, Simon, son of John, do you love me? He said to him, yes, Lord, you know I love you. He said to him, tend my sheep. Jesus said to him the third time, Simon, son of John, do you love me? And Peter was grieved because he said to him the third time, do you love me? And he said, Lord, you know everything. You know that I love you. Jesus said to him, feed my sheep. Truly, truly, I say to you, when you were young, you used to dress yourself. You used to go wherever you wanted. But when you're old, You'll stretch out your hands and another will dress you and carry you where you do not want to go. This he said to show by what kind of death Peter would glorify God. And after this, he said to him, follow me. First, we realize Jesus gives Peter the opportunity to affirm his love for Jesus three times, just as he denied him three times. And first, Jesus asked him, do you love me more than these? Maybe Jesus was referring to the disciples that were sitting around them because Peter bragged at the Last Supper, even if all the other disciples fall away from you, I never will. Some people believe Jesus was pointing at the nets full of fish, Peter's occupation and livelihood. Would Peter walk away from all he's familiar with and fish for men instead? So a lot's been written about Jesus's three uses, uh, two uses of the word love in his questions. Here's a possibility. He uses the word agape, which is a sacrificial love, an unconditional love. It means supreme commitment. He also used the word phileo, which means an affectionate, brotherly love. Jesus's first two questions, do you love me, Peter? He used the word agape, 
sacrificial, committed love. Peter responded to every question, you know that I love you. Phileo, I love you, phileo, Jesus. You know, maybe Peter didn't want to brag anymore. Maybe he was so humbled, he wasn't sure he could keep that total commitment. Because he thought he could do that once before, and he failed. And the third, do you love me? Jesus says, do you phileo me, Peter, as you're confessing? Can you really commit to even that, Peter? Jesus is driving home in order for Peter to be an effective shepherd, he would need to be entirely devoted to Jesus. Three times, Jesus gave Peter opportunity to reaffirm his love for him. Three times, Jesus commissioned Peter to care for the flock of the coming church. When Peter turned around and wondered about the future of his friend John that he saw standing behind them, Jesus continued to teach Peter about good, godly leadership. Peter asked what's going to happen to John, and Jesus said, what is that to you? You follow me. And with the help of the Holy Spirit, that's exactly what Peter did. He obeyed. He cared for the flock of Christ. He helped build the early church, and he loved passing this kind of commission on to others. Peter the impulsive became a really loving shepherd. Look at what he says in 1 Peter 5. Peter says, I exhort the elders among you as a fellow elder and a witness of the sufferings of Christ, as well as a partaker in the glory that's to be revealed, shepherd the flock of God that's among you, exercising oversight, but not under compulsion, but willingly as God would have you, not for shameful gain, but eagerly, not domineering over those in your charge, but by being examples to the flock. Peter would be faithful to his calling up until the day that his hands were also stretched out on a cross to be crucified. Tradition says he refused the honor of being crucified like his Lord, and so he was crucified upside down. Another crowning proof of the resurrection. How do you take a group full of disconnected, frightened, terrified men and change the world with them. When they became men of courage, men of conviction, it's because they saw Jesus alive and they knew his presence, the Holy Spirit, lived within them. Tradition holds actually that all of them, except for John, died as martyrs. They would rather die than renounce the resurrection of Jesus Christ and who he really is. So, you know, Jesus asks us the same questions. He asked Peter, do you love me? We might believe Jesus rose from the dead, but after that we have two choices. We can ignore our calling and keep fishing for other things that we're familiar with, or we can agape love him living our lives entirely committed to him. That means we have to seek him. Look at Psalm 42. 
As a deer pants for flowing streams, so pants my soul for you, O God. So we can learn from everyone we looked at today some things about seeking God. So first, like Mary Magdalene, we've got to persevere in our pursuit. Mary pursued Jesus before his death, taking care of him. Mary pursued him at his death, loyally standing under the cross. And Mary pursued him in his death, running back and forth to the tomb to serve him and be with him. And because she persevered, she was rewarded. Like Mary, we have to continue to pursue him even when we can't find him. That happens sometimes. We're in deep, dark places. We can't find him. We have to trust. He'll find us. He'll call out our name because we belong to him. Like John, we believe the evidence. I love that John did that. You and I can just go outside and look at creation. And we know the evidence is this is God's power. This is God's beauty. We can look in our hands and we know these are the words of God. We can look in the Old Testament and we know Jesus fulfills prophecies. We can look in the New Testament and we can see there were many true witnesses of the resurrection. And then we can look at our own lives and we know he's always been our faithful provider. And we gather this evidence in like John and the disciples gathered in the fish. And we can also say like John, it is the Lord. I have the evidence. Like the disciples, we desire Jesus's presence. You know, do you think the disciples, when they were together in the locked room, them being together like that took away their desire for Jesus? Do you think when they were fishing together on that Sea of Galilee, it took away their desire for Jesus? No, nothing can take away that inner desire we have for Jesus. Nothing can fill us. Nothing satisfies us. We are created to seek him. When we get away from habits that keep us from Jesus, when we desire him above all other things, we can look out like the disciples did on the shore and realize he is prepared to meet with us. Come, have breakfast with me. We just come. He provides everything else. I read this amazing story of a woman named Anne who was an addicted to cocaine and alcohol, but she would go to a church and sit in the back just to hear the music. She never stayed for the sermon. And she says this. One day she was just lying on her bed in a bad state. And she says, after a while, as I lay there, I became aware of someone with me. The feeling was so strong, I actually turned on the light for a moment to make sure no one was there. And of course there wasn't, but after a while in the dark again, I knew beyond any doubt that it was Jesus. And I was appalled. I thought about what everyone would think of me if I became a Christian. It seemed utterly impossible. It could not be allowed to happen. I turned to the wall and said out loud, I'd rather die. She fell asleep, went back to church another time, and says, I was so hungover, I couldn't stand up for the songs. And so this time I stayed for the sermon. 
which seemed to me to be ridiculous. But someone was trying to convince me of something. The last song was so deep and raw, I could not escape its message. I began to cry, and I left before the benediction, and I raced home, and I opened the door to my house, and I stood there a minute, and I hung my head and said, I quit. I took a long, deep breath and said aloud, All right, Jesus, you can come in. And she says, that was my beautiful moment of conversion. Jesus was waiting for her. Then like Thomas, we set aside our pride. It seems like when Jesus kindly came to him and offered him help so he could believe, Thomas immediately cried out, my Lord and my God. He didn't try to defend himself. He didn't try to explain himself. He looked into the face of Jesus and knew the truth and called him who he is. And like Thomas, sometimes our pride can keep us from seeking Jesus because we want our plan to work. We want to do things our way. Sometimes our pride then keeps us from seeing Jesus, who he really is. Thomas learned who he is. We can learn who he is. He's the God that meets us at our weakest point, and he still loves us. We have to set our pride aside. Like Peter, we affirm our love and obedience. You know, sometimes we don't think about the fact that denying, uh, disobeying Jesus is really denying him. Our actions don't in any way point to who he is, be it three times or 300 times. When God steps in to confront us, when he takes us to the fire, we can run away or we can face his discipline and courage like Peter did. When we humbly face him, we found out he gives us the opportunity to reaffirm our love for him. He gives us the opportunity to obey again because he still has big plans for us when we let him use discipline in our lives. And then our confessed sins sort of sink away over those deep waves of his love. Let's finish the book of John, reminding ourselves why he wrote it. Chapter 20, verse 30. Now Jesus did many other signs in the presence of the disciples, which aren't written in this book, but these are written so you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing, you may have life in his name. You know, a lot of mornings, I start the day like this when I'm driving somewhere in my car. I sing that first line in the Easter hymn we love, Christ the Lord is risen today. And that's all I have to sing. And I look at the sky and the clouds and, and I realize he's risen today. Everything looks different in my life when I start the day thinking about that fact. John says, when we believe that reality, without a doubt, we will have life overflowing. And he walks with me, and he talks with me, and he tells me I am his own. And the joy we share when we tarry there, none other has ever known. Let me pray for us. Father, you are the risen Lord. 
all glory to you, all praise to you. May our lives reflect that reality. And we pray this in Jesus' holy name. Amen.